0: When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app.
1: For the sake of argument that you engaged in insurrection. We fight like hell. Could you then run for president again? The state of Colorado says no, at least not on our ballot.
2: By engaging in insurrection against the Constitution, President Trump disqualified himself from public office.
1: Now the U.S. Supreme Court will decide.
3: We'll hear argument this morning in case 23719 Trump versus Anderson.
1: Tonight, Donald Trump's battle to remain on the ballot for the 2024 presidential election.
3: For an insurrection there needs to be an
4: organized concerted effort to overthrow the government of the United States through violence.
1: So the, at the
5: point curve? is that a chaotic effort to overthrow the government is not an insurrection. The Colorado case, its national implications.
6: The question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States.
1: And the damned if you do, damned if you don't predictions of chaos either way.
6: Members of this court have disagreed about
2: that. I'm asking you. <laughs>
1: Tonight, Jason Murray is here live, the lawyer who argued today's case for Colorado voters. Joy Reid, Chris Hayes, Lawrence O'Donnell, Ari Melber, Alex Wagner, Stephanie Rule, all here for MSNBC's special coverage of the Supreme Court arguments on the disqualification of Donald Trump. Welcome to our primetime recap of the historic proceedings today at the United States Supreme Court. I'm Rachel Maddow here at MSNBC Home Base, along with my beloved colleagues, Lawrence O'Donnell and Joy Reid and Ari Melber and Chris Hayes. Happy to have you all here. No cameras are allowed in federal courtrooms, including the United States Supreme Court. But today, for the arguments about whether former President Trump should be disqualified from office for having engaged in an insurrection against the U.S. government, the justices did allow for the sound of the proceedings, the audio, to be live-streamed. Here on MSNBC, we carried the audio of those oral arguments live and in full. That was starting just after 10 a.m. Eastern Time. But we also know that most people have lives and jobs and school and other responsibilities that might make it hard to take like two hours out of a Thursday to stare at an audio speaker for hours trying to figure out if that was Gorsuch or Alito yelling at that poor lawyer. So because of that, we are here tonight to recap what happened in primetime. In the 1970s, Watergate hearings were also broadcast live during the workday, recognizing how consequential, how important those hearings were. News networks during that time started recapping each day's Watergate hearings at night on TV in primetime, so no one would miss out on that incredibly important history in the making. We then did the same during the daytime hearings of the January 6th investigation in Congress in 2022. We know from what we have heard from you, our beloved viewers, that that was valuable. That was a useful thing. And so here we are together again tonight with basically the same approach. The United States Supreme Court is now considering whether the leading candidate for the Republican presidential nomination should be banned from running again. Or potentially, might it be okay to allow him to run again, to allow him to be on the ballot, to allow him to compete and potentially even win the election, whereupon only then would he be prohibited from actually taking up the job? Now, why would you allow someone to run for an office if they are ineligible to hold that office? I don't know. But for the non lawyers among us, I think we can all take comfort in the fact that that idea sounded just as cockamamie and nuts today at the United States Supreme Court as it would if you tried to explain it to somebody on a street corner.
2: I think it would create a number of really difficult issues. If the court says there's no procedure for determining President Trump's eligibility until after the election. And then what happens when members of Congress on January 6th, when they count the electoral votes, say, we're not going to count electoral votes cast for President Trump because he's disqualified. That is kind of a disenfranchisement and constitutional crisis in the making, and is all the more reason to address those issues now in a judicial process on a full evidentiary record so that everybody can have certainty on those issues before they go to the polls.
5: If we think that the states can't enforce this provision for whatever reason in this context, in the presidential context, what happens next in this case I mean, is it done?
2: If this court concludes that Colorado did not have the authority to exclude President Trump from the presidential ballot on procedural grounds, I think think this case would be done. But I think it could come back with a vengeance because ultimately members of Congress may have to make the the determination after a presidential election if President Trump wins about whether or not he's disqualified from office and whether to count votes cast for him.
1: If he might be ineligible to hold office in the United States, but states aren't allowed to keep him off the ballot, then how does the Constitution's ban on insurrectionists holding office get enforced? Just think about it logically, right? If states can't enforce it by keeping people off the ballot before the election, then Congress would have to enforce the ban after the election, which would mean Congress would have to decide after the election, but before inauguration on, say, January 6th, 2025, they would have to decide then and there whether they're going to count electoral votes for Trump or not, based on whether or not Congress believes at that point that Trump is eligible or ineligible for office, depending on whether, in their infinite wisdom, Congress thinks he engaged in an insurrection the last time around. Congress will just work it out in Congress, on the spot, on January 6th itself. What could possibly go wrong? You just heard Jason Murray there, who did most of the arguing today for the plaintiffs who successfully sued in Colorado to keep Trump off the ballot. We're going to be speaking live with Jason Murray in, in just a few moments here tonight. But that, that same point about how strange it would be to do what Trump's lawyers propose, to not start to decide whether Trump is eligible to be president until after the election, until. After he has potentially been elected president, that same point was also made in a slightly different way by the second lawyer, by the Colorado Solicitor General, who today also defended Colorado taking Trump off the ballot.
7: petitioner contends that Colorado must put him on the ballot because of the possibility there would be a supermajority act of Congress to remove his legal disability. Under this theory, Colorado and every other state would have to indulge this possibility not just for the primary, but through the general election and up to the moment that an ineligible candidate was sworn into office. Nothing in the Constitution strips the states of their power to direct presidential elections in this way.
1: In other words, do not make us do this. (laughs) In other words, dear justices, rule that he's eligible for office, or rule that he's ineligible for office, but do not force a situation in which he must be allowed to run, but he might not be allowed to serve. If he's elected, I mean, if you thought last January 6th was bad, just wait to see what you'd unleash for the next one. If we followed this course, here's Chief Justice John Roberts today.
3: Counsel, um, um, what if somebody came in to a state secretary of state's office and said, uh, um, I took the oath specified in Section 3. I participated in an insurrection um, uh, and uh, I want to be on the ballot. Does the Secretary of State have the authority in that situation to say, no, you're disqualified? No, the
4: Secretary of State could not do that consistent with term limits. Because even if the candidate is an admitted insurrectionist, Section 3 still allows the candidate to run for office and even win election to office and then see whether Congress lifts that disability after the election. Well,
3: even though it's pretty unlikely or at least would be difficult uh, for an individual who says... um, you know, I, I am an insurrectionist, uh, and I had taken the oath. That would require uh, two thirds of votes in Congress, right? Correct. Well, this is a pretty uh, unlikely scenario.
1: That's a pretty unlikely scenario. So that's that's point one from today's Supreme Court arguments. The proposed remedy here from the Trump side, which which Congress has to enforce the ban on an insurrectionist serving in office, that that ban can only be enforced. After the election, that Trump has to be allowed to run, even though he might not be allowed to actually serve if he wins, the, the practicalities of that, what that might mean for the country, that those implications that are both bizarre and daunting, as described by lawyers in the case today, I think that's point number one. now let's talk about a second fundamental point that didn't necessarily go as expected today at the court. it's the the very basic question of whether or not former president Trump did engage in an insurrection. Uh, Everybody knew this was going to be something that was going to have to come up today, but there was less discussion on this point today than many observers expected. What there was was quite punchy, though. Um, Let's start with Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson and Jonathan Mitchell, who's the lawyer who today argued for former President Trump.
5: The Colorado Supreme Court concluded that the violent attempts of the petitioner supporters uh, in this case to halt the count Uh, on January 6th qualified as an insurrection, uh, as defined by Section 3. And I read your opening brief to accept uh, that those events counted as an insurrection. Um, But then your reply seemed to suggest that they were not. So what is your position as to that? we, We never
4: accepted or conceded in our opening brief that this was an insurrection. What we said in our opening brief was President Trump did not engage in any act that can plausibly be characterized as insurrection.
5: All right, so because why would this not, engage- not be an insurrection? What is your argument that it's not? Your reply brief says that it wasn't because, I think you say, um, it did not involve an organized attempt to overthrow right. the government.
4: So That's one of many reasons. But for an insurrection, there needs to be an organized, concerted effort to overthrow the government of the United States through violence. And this...
5: And so riot the point that occurred, is that a chaotic effort to overthrow the government is not an insurrection? No, we didn't
4: concede that it's an effort to overthrow the government either, Justice Jackson, right? None of these criteria were met. This was a riot. It was not an insurrection. The events were shameful, criminal, violent, all of those things, but it did not qualify as insurrection, as that term is used in Section 3. Thank you. Because,
1: thanks. Thanks. It was... If it, if it was chaotic, it wasn't an insurrection. Like, if... The way you can tell something's an insurrection is because they march in lines. (laughs) That's part of the... What's a little riot got to do with anything? Justice Brett Kavanaugh uh, elicited some of the strongest pushback on this point, this point of whether this was an insurrection and the implications of that. He elicited some of the strongest pushback on that today uh, from Jason Murray, one of the lawyers for the Colorado voters.
8: In trying to figure out what Section 3 means, and to the extent it's elusive language or vague language, what about the idea that um, we should think about democracy, think about the right of the people to elect uh, candidates of their choice, uh, of letting the people decide, because your position has the effect of disenfranchising Uh, voters to a significant degree. What about the background principle,
2: if you agree, of democracy? I'd like to make three points on that, Justice Kavanaugh. The first is that constitutional safeguards are for the purpose of safeguarding our democracy, not just for the next election cycle, but for generations to come. And, And second, Section 3 is designed to protect our democracy in that very way. The framers of Section 3 knew from painful experience that those who had violently broken their oaths to the Constitution couldn't be trusted to hold power again because they could dismantle our constitutional democracy from within. And so they created a democratic safety valve. President Trump can go ask Congress to give him amnesty by a two-thirds vote. But unless he does that, our Constitution protects us from insurrectionists. And third, this case illustrates the danger of refusing to apply Section 3 as written, Because the reason we're here is that President Trump tried to disenfranchise 80 million Americans who voted against him. And the Constitution doesn't require that he be given another chance. Thank you.
1: The Constitution doesn't require that he be given another chance. The Constitution protects us from insurrectionists. So we're going to talk tonight about the justices... Uh, discussing what it would mean to prosecute Trump federally for the crime of insurrection rather than having it adjudicated in, like, for example, a Colorado trial court. We're going to talk about the justices debating Trump's lawyers' claims that he's the only former U.S. president who can't be banned from office for committing insurrection. All the others would be banned from office for committing insurrection, but Trump personally can't. We're going to talk about the justices asking why one state should be able to do something this consequential. That's one where the questions went out like cannonballs, but the answers were actually pretty good. So we have a lot to talk about tonight, but let's let's start with these, these first couple of takeaways here. Was this an insurrection? And if there is a ban in the Constitution on insurrectionists holding office, but you can't enforce it by preventing ineligible candidates from running for office— then how exactly does that ban get enforced? Ari Melber, you were in the room today. When it happened, you were there for the for the arguments. First of all, let me ask you to critique my summary. Do you think it's fair to pull out those points as some of the pillars on which this argument was held up?
9: I think it's very fair, and it's the first time we've seen the aspects of the insurrection, insurrection discussed by the Supreme Court.
1: Mm-hmm. In terms of the argument about... Um, Well, on the point of insurrection, I I felt like I was going to hear a lot tonight, a lot today about um, what counts as an insurrection that snark from. Justice Jackson was priceless, but we didn't hear a lot of substantive Mm -mm. other discussion about what it takes to call something an insurrection. Does that tell us something important about where the justices see their sort of the the edge of their their job description here in terms of what they ought to be considering?
9: Yes, it tells us a lot and it also speaks to how bipartisan this was if you go by the different justices appointed by different Mm. parties. Based on the questioning, which is all we have to go on, uh, I would give you eight or nine votes likely against the Colorado Trump ballot ban, mm-hmm. and that's not because all eight or nine of those people are soft on insurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because of the the things you raised, and that we heard some in the questioning about. And so, uh, I'll give you a detailed legal answer to that if you want, but I'll start with something very simple, which is it was clear by the end of the argument that most of these people just didn't want to go near ballot bans mm-hmm. the reasoning came second it was almost more honest than usual how much everyone was like we don't want to do this we're not going to co-sign this and then let's find how do a we way get out? out how do we get out and so i would liken it to if anyone's ever had a destination wedding invite that you're not excited <laughs> about like these people you used to know better from a while back and it's in antarctica and you're first <laughs> like look let me tell you straight up That's far away. (laughs) I heard it's cold weather. Also, I think it's really expensive. Tickets, right? You're like brainstorming why you can't go. I have a sore
10: back. Yes.
9: I have have a energy. How close are we? Mm -hmm. Now, (laughs) any of those things might also be true. Um, and someone then might come to you and say, oh, there's a super sale because not a lot of people want to go to Antarctica. Super cheap <laughs> tickets. And you're like, yeah, but it wasn't just the ticket. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are other reasons. And that's yeah. that's what it felt like to me. And so so if you're looking for this to be the case that stops Trump, I would tell you maybe you find it to be bad okay. news. Not you. I mean, the viewer or anyone listening, thinking as a citizen. But if you're thinking, does the court still work on a nonpartisan basis? In some ways, we saw that answered with how much it, it was like that. And so to then jump in briefly to your legal question. Yeah. The big thing was, even if it is an insurrection or even if this is something that you should be kicked off the ballot for, who decides that? Is it just a random secretary of state in one state? Um, and we have a lot of different types of ways we pick secretaries of state and they vary in partisanship. Is it judges in this state? And as Chief Roberts put it, at one point being as, as kind of blunt as he could, he wasn't talking law or text. He just said, wait, but if we did allow this, then other states would punch back. If we give them the power and say any state can do this, then they're all going to be knocking each other off the ballot. Now, let me tell you, Rachel. Good answer to that. Pro- Go ahead.
1: There's a good the, the Justice Roberts raised that issue. Another justice raised that issue as well. Good answers to that issue, though, from the lawyers who are representing the Colorado voters.
9: I think Colorado had a very substantive answer, which is uh, there was an insurrection and it was televised. <laughs> and there's only one person who called those people to town. And that this idea of insurrections popping up everywhere is not factually true. And the court's concern about that, which I think includes... Democratic appointees. I think Justice Jackson, who's a Biden appointee, who's well versed on how they tried to stop then President Biden from coming to office. I don't think she's minimizing the insurrection. I think her point was, yes, but we're still going to run into who resolves that. In other words, you could be factually right, but still have an arms race across the states, and that is a concern for the court. And so this became, if I was going to bottom line it legally, this became much more of a debate about the remedy. Mm -hmm. Should this be dealt with in some other part of government? Right. Then the problem, the problem is huge.
1: And let me stick with you on that for a second, though, because the uh, and and we're going to talk in more detail about the sort of parade of horrors. What Mm. if a state can take a person off the ballot? What would that mean? What (laughs) would the other states do? There would be retaliation. There would be reason there would be unreasonable actions taken by other states to take other people off the ballot. We'll, We'll we'll talk about that in a little bit. But. On this issue of whether or not the states do this or somebody else does, we also got a parade of horrors today in that courtroom about what happens if the states don't do it. Because if there is a ban on insurrection in the Constitution and it can't be enforced by the states, then it has to be enforced by Congress, which is inviting another January 6th disaster. That's the rejoinder, right? That the, It's it's one way or the other. You may not like the states doing it, but if they don't do it, the Congress is going to have to do it. And that's going to be a disaster, too. We've seen that before.
9: Yeah. Now, to sound like a lawyer, I think that is a non-frivolous point. It is a oh, legitimate. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a legitimate point. And so what we, we saw in the oral argument was you, you're offering chaos. I see you with chaos. Yes. That these now. And if you do, Dan, yeah. if you don't. And there's a there's a saying in the law about constitutional hardball. Well, this is beyond hardball. This is sort of constitutional flagrant fouls or constitutional violence or whatever you want to call it. Trump and his fans and his now convicted sedition fans. Right. He wasn't convicted of sedition or charged with it. He waits. He waits for something else. But his fans, the people he summoned, many of them have now been convicted of sedition. They have now sparked this back and forth. And we're going to hear, as you mentioned, from the lawyer later tonight, who was arguing that having gone down this road, there need to be strong remedies pushing back. Having said that, though, I think that the justices, including the Democratic appointees, basically said, yes, but not at the state level. Right. Figure out some other bar.
1: Right. Figure out some other bar. And what you are proposing as the other bar here does sound a little scary. But let's not punt, let's punt on that um, for now. All right. Our special coverage of today's historic Supreme Court hearing uh, is just getting started. Uh, still to join us, as already mentioned, the attorney for the California voters in this case who argued today in the court. Jason Murray is going to be with us live. Stay with us.
2: States have the power to ensure that their citizens' electoral votes are not wasted on a candidate who is constitutionally barred from holding office. States are allowed to safeguard their ballots by excluding those who are underage, foreign-born, running for a third presidential term, or, as here, those who have engaged in insurrection against the Constitution in violation of their oath. I welcome the court's questions.
0: Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. This is Alito. Uh, Is there any history of states using Section 3 as a way to bar federal office holders? Not that I'm aware,
4: Justice Alito.
1: Not that I'm aware, Justice Alito. Nope, this hasn't happened before. I wonder why that is. Welcome back to our primetime recap of today's Supreme Court proceedings on whether former President Donald Trump is eligible or ineligible to ever again stand for office in the United States after what happened the last time. Uh, What you just heard there was a nice short, sharp jab from conservative Justice Samuel Alito, answered by President Trump's lawyer, Jonathan Mitchell, today. Uh, The real rejoinder to what President, uh, excuse me, what Justice Alito was asking there, though, it it came a few minutes later uh, from the lawyer on the other side, the lawyer for Colorado voters, Jason Murray, um, in a back and forth with Chief Justice John Roberts, in which the chief justice essentially says to the lawyer, hey, this is crazy that we'd have to decide something like this, isn't it? The lawyer then essentially responds, yes, it's crazy, but the reason it's crazy is that they're running a guy as their candidate for president who just recently tried to overthrow the U.S. government. Yes, that is crazy. Nothing like that has ever happened in this country before, at least since the Civil War. But yeah, it's crazy. And yeah, you do kind of have to clean it up now. Listen.
3: So what do you do with the what would seem to me to be plain consequences of your position. If Colorado's uh, position is upheld, surely there will be disqualification proceedings on the other side, and some of those will succeed. Some of them will have different standards of proof. Some of them will have uh, uh, different rules about uh, evidence, although my predictions have never been correct. Uh, I would expect (laughs) that... uh, you know, a goodly number of states will say, uh, whoever the Democratic candidate is, you're off the ballot, and others, uh, the, for the Republican candidate, you're off the ballot, and it'll come down to just a handful of states that are going to decide the presidential election. That's a pretty daunting consequence.
2: Well, certainly, Your Honor, the fact that there are potential frivolous applications of a constitutional provision isn't a reason... Well, no,
3: hold on. I mean, you might think they are frivolous, but probably the people who are bringing them may not think they're frivolous. Um, insurrection is a broad... Uh, broad term. And if there's some debate about it, I suppose that will go into the uh, decision and then eventually what we would be deciding, uh, whether uh, it was an insurrection when one president did something as opposed to when somebody else did something else. And what do we do? Do we wait until near the time of uh, uh, counting the ballots and sort of
2: go through which states uh, are valid and which states aren't? There's a reason Section 3 has been dormant for 150 years, and it's because we haven't seen anything like January 6th Since Reconstruction, insurrection against the Constitution is something extraordinary. It seems to me you're
3: avoiding the question, which is other states may have different views about what constitutes insurrection. And now you're saying, well, it's all right because somebody, presumably us, are going to decide, well, they said they thought that was an insurrection, but they were wrong. And maybe they thought it was right. And we'd have to develop rules for what constitutes an insurrection.
2: Yes, Your Honor, just like this court interprets other constitutional provisions, this court can make clear that an insurrection against the Constitution is something extraordinary. And in particular, it really requires a concerted group effort to resist through violence, not some ordinary application of state or federal law.
1: (laughs) Counselor. You're saying that someone, presumably us, would have to develop rules for what constitutes an insurrection? Unfortunately, yes, sir. Unfortunately, we have come to that moment in U.S. history. Yeah, we're going to need to have some rules around this. Joy Reid, um, this is, a, I mean, it, I don't think anybody thinks that... Um, that the Colorado petitioners are going to get their way you from know. the Supreme Court today, but some of these questions, the way that they were raised, and the way the lawyers had to sort of say to these Supreme Court justices, "Yeah, yeah we're sorry, we're here, yeah, <laughs> but we're here," it's really striking. It was. It's not. It's not like it's every day that people try to overthrow the
11: government with violence. You know what I mean? And and you know, to that question you'd actually have some facts around which to organize an attempt to throw a random Democrat off of the ballot in Republican state. It's not like you could just do it. And let's just review the record here. Donald Trump wasn't just declared an insurrectionist because the Democrats in Colorado were mad. A bunch of Republican petitioners took this case to court. There was an actual trial at which they determined and adjudicated based on some Republican petitioners saying he did try to be an insurrectionist. Fact number two, he was impeached specifically and attempting and supporting an insurrection. It, it, there, there are plenty of facts on the table that say that the point of the what they're saying was just a riot. It wasn't a riot for no reason because mm. the people just weren't having a good day. It was in a riot to attempt to replace the winner of the presidential election with the loser of the presidential election, thereby to replace the government that was supposed to take effect with a government that was over. By definition, that is attempting to... Full an insurrection and replace the. Government. So I mean, I thought some of the arguments were so circular, and the idea that they can't adjudicate, they can't make a decision here, out of the fear that at, at some point in the future, Democratic states would then try. I mean, or Republican states would then try to say that a different person was an insurrectionist based on none
1: of those facts. If all of those things happened again, yeah, that would happen because it would be an insurrection. But again, like this is, and Alex, I'll put this to you. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Now, <laughs> Great to be here. <laughs> um This was, a, this was something that was raised by both, um, liberal and conservative yes. justices today, the idea, well, if Colorado has done this to Donald Trump, then other states might retaliate by doing this in very unfair ways to other candidates. The rejoinder to that is, yes, you could also bring frivolous and malicious prosecutions Backward. if you ever get caught for anything in the criminal law. The idea is, though, that our systems exist. The structures of government and testing of facts exists in the courts. And and therefore, if somebody's going to unfairly retaliate or retaliate not based on the kind of facts pattern that Joy is describing. Well, we'd catch that and we'd let it go
12: through. right? <laughs> well, here's what I'll say. I, I think that it's far fetched to suggest that all of a sudden this is going to lead, lead to a spate of efforts to get Joe Biden off of the ballot in red states. But I do think there is, I mean, what did Alito call it? Unmanageable consequences. Mm-hmm. Imagine, forget Joe Biden. Imagine you just have a bunch of red states where Donald Trump stays on the ballot and a bunch of blue states where Donald Trump's off the ballot. That in and of itself is problematic, right? You don't you don't even have to, like, game out the scenario whereby, you know, Biden is the victim of some political partisan hackery related to this decision. You just have to work out a scenario where Donald Trump's name doesn't appear on all the ballots mm-hmm. in the United States. But that's that, a huge but, but, problem so for but that that's is, a election.
1: That is and, a problem that happens now for third-party candidates, right? That There are candidates who are running as third-party or independent candidates right. who get on the ballot in some states and, and don't get others. on the ballot in others. That's right. And it's a quantitative matter, not a qualitative matter. Well, Major-party candidates Candidates don't
12: tend to have that problem, yeah. but each state's ballot looks different. I, I, I am not arguing that that should be, you know, that should be the reason they decide what they decide. But it seemed really clear as one person among many who sat looking or watching a blank screen to audience, <laughs> staring it, at a speaker, yeah. that these, all of these justices seem very much less concerned with the textual interpretation yes. the originalism of the constitution C- yeah, the and constitution. much more concerned I- roundly about the the political reality that is ahead of them and to the degree that they may they may say it's not up to states to decide this congress or or the the federal judicial system needs to decide this in which case you will inevitably have a lawsuit in the federal courts on the same basis in short order. But
11: isn't that a consequence of the actual fact that our elections are decided by the states? Like, that's actually the system, right? The states Mm -hmm. get to decide the election. They get to decide who qualifies in their state. That's the system, right? And trying to say that because states decide and that what you'd have to do is essentially disenfranchise, right? All the states where Trump won the electoral college votes in that state. On January 6, 2025, by saying, oh, guess what? He ain't getting a waiver. <laughs> Who's getting two thirds of a vote in the House of Representatives to get the waiver? So you're saying, let the people vote for Trump. Then go to January 6, 2025. And then and then they're not going to use that. Right. Clearly, they're not going to use that. It's absurd. But I, I
10: guess I would say that there, there's a weird thing. Just to take a step back. Part of what was sort of weird about today is there is there's this sort of Calvin ball the conservatives play with their methodology on this court right which is they love textualism except when they don't need it yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> like, yes. exactly the textualism is like you you look i mean we have our personal policy preferences, we have outcomes we want, but we, right. can't, be, we can't be thinking of outcomes. We gotta look at the text. <laughs> the text tells us that everyone can have a gun in every public space yeah, in America that, 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 in the year 2023 per Bruin, yeah. and that's just what we gotta do. And like, yes, if you got a kindergartner with someone walking yeah. around with an Uzi, like, sorry, that's the constitution demands. Yes, there's some pragmatic and prudential concerns that we shouldn't do that, well, but that's we what we can't look at them. Sorry, we can't look at that. It. So so they do so they do that when they when they like the outcome, and then the moment they don't like the outcome, they just they chuck it away. over. Right. And we yeah. also have them chuck chuck over their textualism today. And I guess, but the weird thing I want to say to sort of hop on the other side of that hypocrisy is like, personally, I'm not a textualist. And I think all these pragmatic considerations are a okay to think about. And actually, that is how we should be thinking about the Constitution. (laughs) And I'm a legal realist. And I think Posner was right about this, Richard Posner, the, the, the sort of judge who talked about this pragmatism. And so all of these pragmatic questions strike me as perfectly legitimate. The other thing that they totally jettison, to your point, Joy, is like they're all about states deciding this stuff. That's correct. Except in two places. <laughs> Bush v. Gore. Correct. Where suddenly the correct. state couldn't correct. decide because the federal government had to reach That's in, right. good That's for right. one right. right only. That's right. Literally one they right say in only. the opinion, yep. this only counts for here. And now here it's like, well, what are you, you're talking about states? States Just rights. States doing this? We're going to let states Absurd. do it?
11: Right. And by the way, by the way, it's rights. it's think we are? If oh. we're doing that, now do abortion. It, because they have yes literally said the opposite. They said in the case of abortion, yes. you cannot apply a federal standard and force states to live with it. We have to let the states decide. So you're saying states get to decide whether women's wombs are owned by them. But states can't decide their own election rules when it literally says in the Constitution but, that the elections are decided wait, in the state.
10: True. But there is. Let me just say this. There's I love my favorite moments in oral arguments is when like a, ju- a justice is like, but come on. <laughs> and no, seriously, because honestly, that's what a lot of this comes down to. And there's a certain point where where Amy Coney Barrett says you would be the, the voters of Colorado would be deciding the election for the whole country. Right. You take them <laughs> off the ballot. And that's not true because it's a blue state anyway. But the point still holds. And Murray starts to say, well, your honor, no, we would just be deciding for the Colorado voters. And she says, but come on. Like, because it is the case that we all understand that the implications here of the state action are absolutely. That's what happened with Florida, 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 absolutely. Three of them worked
11: on the Bush v. Gore case for Bush. And so for Roberts to be the one who posed the question, well, why should we let one state decide? I don't know. Ask yourself in the year two thousand
1: when you and Coney Barrett and Kavanaugh were helping Bush well, decide been, from one state. For the consequence, though, to be the the prohibition that is clearly in the Constitution that says if you engage in an insurrection, you can't hold office under the United States or in any state. If the the consequence of this argument, the practical consequence is, well, we can't have the states enforce that. <laughs> So, <laughs> Congress has to. Well, that's we're going to have saying. Congress enforce it, which is just going to be a rugby scrum. No, January, they're not going to say that. 6th. Well, that's what, I mean, if the, you can't do no, it until gonna, the guy has been elected, then does Congress no, step in? They are,
10: what they are saying, what they're going to write, I would bet a, a lot of money, is that Congress has to has to pass an enabling statute that spells out specifically the procedures by which, a la which got referenced today, the series of acts passed a Reconstruction, some of them including in called the Enforcement Acts, in which Congress has to specify a procedure because this is too... Uh, Hard to interpret for courts and too crazy to let to the states. Congress has to actually ex ante pass some statute that says how to do this, and then we but, can do it. But then that's says it, will then it Congress says it
11: won't only. do it, and of course of not. They were and, they know that. and they're saying, but that passes a law that. that's only for the president. Because I bring you to Coy Giffen, the uh, Trump cowboy, mm-hmm. who was actually disqualified in the state of New Mexico from holding office. It was some you know some county county local office, county yeah. commissioner. And there was no enabling legislation needed for that to do that. But so that what they're saying law. is right, it's a state law. But the point, what they're saying is they. You're going to have to pass it just for the president because uh, 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 Ketanji Brown Jackson, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, did get into this question of why didn't the drafters of the 14th Amendment include the president? Mm. I guess they didn't have the lurid imagination to, dis- to, you know, to understand that a presidential candidate, somebody who could be president, would commit insurrection. Oh. And so why didn't they specify the and president? Can I
9: just, add a, just a legal point. We are talking right now about the what, which is very important. Most of the argument turned on the who. And one of the cases they talked about the most was this term limits case, which isn't a perfect case, by the way.
1: Can you just say it's the a weird name case. of the yeah. case is term limits? Yes, it's it's not a case about term <laughs> about limits. <Yeah.
9: laughs> and, right. And, and, very frustrating. And <laughs> the Supreme Court has previously held that if you add something, even something that sounds really reasonable, like we don't want people in Congress forever, right, and we want to have a limit on that amount of time, they said that actually is adding an eligibility requirement and you cannot do that. And so... Yes, the what is super important. Indeed, I would argue that the the split on the court is about the what and we might see that, by the way, on the immunity case that we're watching. Mm -hmm. But the who is if it's a federal requirement that's in the federal constitution about the the 14th Amendment, then what states locally do, the who about their local offices is one thing. But what they do about federal is different. And so the who here would be, I don't know, Chris says, now you have a money down on live TV about how they're going to write the ruling. So we'll come back. You could be right. Um, The other thing they could do is say, Donald Trump, whatever you think of him, not only hasn't been convicted of insurrection, but he hasn't been charged with insurrection or an insurrection-like offense, which would be insurrection or sedition, and therefore— uh, the who has to be some prosecutor or some other process at the federal level and not the state level. And I know that's frustrating. I'm not even, by the way, just I'll do, it's annoying when the justices do that, but I'll do it too. I'm not saying I agree with all this stuff. <laughs> I'm just kidding <laughs> you. I had to sit through law school and then I had to sit through the the, the, the the hearing today and the who is that. Is this something that is more like a prosecutor or more like a federal thing but, instead well, of so a state So then what happens then, the let
11: problem- me ask you a question, what happens then if he gets charged with U.S. Code 2383, rebellion or insurrection, if he's convicted of that, he would actually be incapable of holding any office of the United States. So I
9: can answer that in a sense. He or anyone is toast if that happens. The
12: problem, (laughs) the House January 6th committee was quite clear clear in its recommendation that Donald Trump should be charged with inciting an insurrection. Jack Smith did not charge it. it. So now we have a case working its way through the federal courts where Trump could very well be convicted of obstruction and any number of big felonies, except for inciting an insurrection. The question is if he's convicted and when sentencing comes down is disqualification from office part of the oh. part, part of the sentence do does this count as something like Can I just say though that had
1: Donald Trump been charged with insurrection we the way the, the January thing. 6th investigation recommended had he been charged today there's no chance that Brett Kavanaugh would have sat there and been like well anybody convicted of insurrection exactly. exactly it's only because exactly. he wasn't charged exactly. with yes. that Boom. they're just saying yes. like, oh Boom. but Calvin exactly. yes you'd yes. so only clear. done that exactly yes it's all it's called legislative <laughs> yeah. to the purpose yes all right still to come we've got uh, a lot more from today's Supreme Court hearing including the very very sort of poignant in a bad way moment where the lawyer for the plaintiffs uh, took a question from his old boss, Neil Gorsuch.
8: Do you agree that the state's powers here over its ballot for federal officer election have to come from some constitutional authority?
2: Members of this court have disagreed about that. I'm asking you. (laughs) Uh Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, we are here because for the first time since the War of 1812, our nation's capital came under violent assault. For the first time in history, the attack was incited by a sitting President of the United States to disrupt the peaceful transfer of presidential power. By engaging in insurrection against the Constitution, President Trump disqualified himself from public office. As we heard earlier, President Trump's main argument is that this court should create a special exemption to Section 3 that would apply to him and to him alone. He says Section 3 disqualifies all oath-breaking insurrectionists except a former president who never before held other state or federal office. There is no possible rationale for such an exemption. And the court should reject the the claim that the framers made an extraordinary mistake.
1: Did the framers make an extraordinary mistake? Uh, Welcome back to our primetime recap of the U.S. Supreme Court's deliberations today, their oral arguments today over whether or not former President Donald Trump should be disqualified from standing for office. Jason Murray is the Denver-based lawyer whose argument helped convince the Colorado Supreme Court that Trump should be disqualified from Colorado's ballot. Today, Mr. Murray made his Supreme Court debut, representing six Colorado voters who brought that initial challenge to Trump's eligibility. In addition to more than a decade as a trial lawyer, Mr. Murray has worked closely with two of the justices who are up there on the dais today. He clerked for Justice Neil Gorsuch when Justice Gorsuch sat on the 10th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. He also clerked for Justice Elena Kagan at the U.S. Supreme Court. Today, Mr. Murray appeared before those justices in a different capacity, making the case to them that the ruling he won in Colorado should stand, that Donald Trump should not be allowed on the Colorado ballot. Joining us now live after a very long, very stressful day uh, is Jason Murray. Mr. Murray, congratulations on your appearance at the court today. And thanks for making time to be here tonight.
2: Thank you so much. And I appreciate you having me on.
1: So I know that this was not your first time in that courtroom and you're very familiar with Supreme Court procedure. And you've seen a lot of lawyers uh, step up to the podium today. How was it um, for you to do it for the first time?
2: It was certainly a source of pride for me to get to argue in the Supreme Court for the first time and also to be able to appear before my former bosses.
1: In terms of how things went today, I don't think it's going to come as a surprise to you for me to tell you that most observers— Think that the case is not going your way. Most observers think that President Trump uh, will be allowed on the ballot, that Colorado's decision to take him off the ballot uh, will effectively be overturned by this court. I have to ask if if you share that common wisdom, if you feel like you have a sense of where the justices are going after uh, what you went through in court today.
2: Well, I I won't sugarcoat it. It certainly seemed like the justices were asking really difficult questions, mostly procedural questions about whether the states had the ability to enforce uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I will say we got a lot of really difficult questions at the Colorado Supreme Court as well. And when the Colorado Supreme Court sat down to write their opinion, they realized we were right on the legal issues. So we hold out hope that as the court gets deeper into the legal issues here, they will realize that the, the law and the history is clearly on our side here. But certainly, they, they did have hard questions today, and I don't think the court would uh, decide a hard case like this one without asking hard questions.
1: Let me ask you to sort of go back into one of the questions on which I think you got some of the the hardest questions. At least uh, I'm not a lawyer to, to a lay observer, and, and I think it's some of the journalism about what happened today. You've seen people uh, reflect on what seemed like some very hard questions about whether or not Colorado as an individual state or indeed any other state um, should have a, a role that wouldn't directly but would effectively... Um, remove a presidential candidate from consideration by the voters of the whole country. That issue, that prospect was raised a few different ways by the justices today. But I wonder if you just take it holistically and address that that criticism of the take that the Colorado Supreme Court and your clients um, brought to the court today.
2: It's an important question, and I think it's based on a misunderstanding, because we weren't here today to ask the Supreme Court to allow Colorado to decide these issues for the nation. We were asking the U.S. Supreme Court to decide as a matter of constitutional law whether Donald Trump is eligible to be president, again, based on his own conduct of engaging in insurrection. Hmm. That isn't a political question for a state to decide. That is a legal question for the court to decide. Hmm. And although the case came up through a state court, many important cases of federal law, federal constitutional law, come up through state courts. But once they're at the U.S. Supreme Court, it is for this court to make the final decision that, that will govern for the whole country about the constitutional eligibility of the candidate. And that was the case we were trying to make today.
9: Hi Jason Ari Melber here. Congratulations to you and, and all the lawyers today because it was a big case and a momentous one uh, and one of the most difficult things to do is handle that hot bench with nine uh justices. So congratulations to all of you. Uh two questions. I don't know if you want to answer both of them. Uh, but given what you went through today and, and it's so hard and so fa- like the whole thing is so fast and complex. Is there any part where you'd want to do over or to extend your remarks or, or build on an answer? Because um, that can happen just in any part of life. So I'm curious if, if that happened all day and you'd share that with us. And then second, um, we discussed today on this panel and it was clear in the courtroom that there was bipartisan skepticism about one of your key points, which is that the insurrection was this unique and rare event. And I wonder, is there a way that through your argument, through the brief, which matters sometimes even more than, than oral argument or through what you did today, um, that you could better sort of to paraphrase a different legal standard, say, yeah, uh, an insurrection is one where you know it when you see it. And we're not going to have a ton of frivolous, made up insurrection claims if some bananas uh, official in some banana state says Biden did insurrection when he gave an interview and, and you go, yeah, yeah, that was very different than the live TV document insurrection that we lived through. You know it when you see it. Uh, So that's the question. Do over and that. Absolutely. Well, let me take the first point first. I wouldn't
2: characterize it as so much of a do-over as the fact that there were a lot of questions that were being asked where I'd get 10 words in before I'd get another question and wouldn't so much have a chance to, to respond. So one thing, one point I'd like to emphasize now, because we didn't come up so much at argument, is just how clear the evidence was and how lucid the Colorado Supreme Court's factual findings were on the fact that President Trump engaged in insurrection against the Constitution. This isn't some sort of secretive thing that relies on, you know, dubious witness testimony. This was in plain sight for everybody to see. We saw the tweets, we saw his words. We saw his campaign manager the day of, his former campaign manager, call this a sitting president asking for a civil war. We saw that even after the Capitol came under violent attack and members of the mob were chanting, hang Mike Pence, President Trump poured more fuel on the fire on Twitter by painting a target on the back of Vice President Pence and egging the attacking mob on. And we saw his tweets at the end when he praised the attackers and justified their actions, saying, these are the things that happen when an election is stolen. This case is as close to a virtual confession of intent to incite insurrection that you can possibly get. And so I thought that some of the discussion about, well, maybe one state will have one evidentiary record and another state will have another, you know, didn't fully engage with that central point. And and if you, oh, I was going to ask you to remind me what your second question was, because now (laughs) I've forgotten it. Insurrection, do you know it when you see it? I think it's more than that. The history is really clear on what an insurrection is. An insurrection is more than a protest gone wrong. An insurrection is more than a riot. An insurrection is a coordinated attack for the purpose of resisting execution of law by force. And section three requires an insurrection against the constitution. And that hasn't happened since the civil war. Mm. Because here, an insurrection against the Constitution requires that you're attacking a function mandated by the Constitution, not just some ordinary law. And here we had an attack on Congress's constitutional duty to certify the presidential election results. So hypotheticals about the idea that a state might misuse Section 3 to go after their political opponents, I think just misses the point. I mean, you can always have frivolous applications of law frivolous cases uh, you know that that are factually and legally baseless and we trust that our justice system will put an end to them by saying this is baseless and i don't see why section 3 should be any different hmm.
11: Hi, Jason. It's Joy Reed. Uh, as a product of Denver Public Schools, I will congratulate you uh, and the state of Colorado for making history by being in front uh, of the Supreme Court. There was a point, and you know, Justice Clarence Thomas, um, he, was, he didn't ask a lot of questions. He obviously asked the first questions as he's the senior justice. But there was one point that he was pretty animated with you. Um, and there was some irony, I'll just say this for myself, that his wife her relationship to the insurrection, I found quite ironic in listening to him speak. But there was a point at which he talked about the plethora of Confederates who were still around after the Civil War. There were any number of people who could continue to either run for state office or national office. So it would seem, he said, that that would suggest that there would at least be a few examples of national candidates being disqualified if your reading is correct. There was a, a lot of engagement with you on that question of if this is such an, an obvious point. And Section three is self-executing. Why aren't there other cases that we can cite where insurrectionists were disqualified in the way that you were arguing Donald Trump should be disqualified? I would love for you to say more on that. Um, If you could have a longer exchange, what more would you say?
2: One of the extraordinary things about this case is that we had about 50 professors of history who are the leading scholars in civil war in the Civil War and Reconstruction file briefs on our side in this case, and they explained that history. They said that immediately after the 14th Amendment was ratified, and even before, Congress was flooded by requests for amnesty from people who knew they would otherwise lose their jobs and be kicked out of office. The Union Army was evicting hundreds of people on a weekly basis from offices in the South that they were ineligible to hold. And we had a number of state court cases where state courts were determining eligibility under Section 3. I took it what Justice Thomas was asking was something much more narrow than that that broad question, which is, were states ever trying to restrict federal officials from taking federal office? And the answer is no, but that's because of how ballots worked differently back then. Mm. States have the power to run elections and to control the ballots. That's incredibly clear from Article 2 of the Constitution. And the difference is that back then, states didn't write the ballots. They didn't run the ballots. Essentially, everyone was a write-in candidate. So the only way that a federal officer who was elected, like a member of Congress, would have their eligibility determined as after the election when they came to Congress and said, I won, and then Congress decided whether to seat them. But that history just doesn't answer the question here because now states are using that power to do ballot access determinations. And so then you have to ask, well, if states can exclude a person who's not a natural born citizen or a person who's underage from the presidential ballot, which they've been doing for many decades, why can't they exclude an oath-breaking insurrectionist?
1: Jason Murray, uh, the lawyer representing Colorado voters who sued to remove Trump from the state ballot, who won at the Colorado Supreme Court, defending that decision today at the United States Supreme Court, uh, serves a heck of a big stage for your first time ever arguing for the Supreme Court. Um, I know that there's pride that goes with it, but I hope you get some rest uh, thereafter and that the adrenaline come down is not too painful.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate that.
1: All right. Good luck. Much more to come in our coverage of the Supreme Court hearing today over whether Donald Trump is disqualified from the ballot. Um, But first, a moment for the named plaintiff in this case, whose lawyer we just met. Uh, She is 91-year-old Colorado Republican, Norma Anderson.
6: This is very personal to me. I've lived a hell of a long time, and I've gone through a lot of presidents. And this is the first one that is trying to destroy the Constitution. If they qualify him, then we just have to work very hard to beat him. (laughs)
0: Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.
5: All right, can I ask you, I'm just, now that I the floor yes. um can i ask you to uh, address your first argument which is the office officer
6: point could, 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 oh sorry yeah why don't we can we um, oh is, is that okay what? if we do this and then we go to sure. sure 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 Sure. You ahead. Know, will there be an opportunity to do officer stuff or should we absolutely absolutely <laughs> Officer
1: stuff. We will get to the officer stuff. Let's do it. Uh, Welcome back to our primetime recap of the Supreme Court's landmark arguments today on whether Donald Trump's effort to overthrow the government the last time he lost an election is sufficient to keep him from standing for election again or from serving as president if indeed he's elected. Every one of us who has ever reported on the U.S. Supreme Court knows better than to extrapolate from oral arguments to try to divine how the justices are eventually going to rule. We know we are not supposed to do that. But even with that caveat, I think everybody's eyebrows shot up to their hairline today when center-left Justice Elena Kagan said this.
6: But maybe put most boldly, I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, you just say it, it sounds awfully national to me. Um, so whatever means there are to enforce it would suggest that they have to be federal, national means. I mean, that seems quite extraordinary, doesn't it?
2: No, Your Honor, because
6: ultimately it's this
2: court that's going to decide that question of federal constitutional eligibility and settle the issue for the nation. And and certainly it's not unusual that questions of national importance come
6: up. Well, I suppose this court would be saying something along the lines of that a state has the power to do it. But I guess I was was asking you to go a little bit further and saying, why should that be the right rule? Why should a single state have the ability to make this determination, not only for their own citizens, but for the rest of the nation.
2: Because Article 2 gives them the power to, to appoint their own electors as they see fit, but if they're going to use a federal constitutional qualification as a ballot access determinant, then it's creating a federal constitutional question that then this court decides.
1: Why should one state be able to decide who's the president, right? For for the plaintiffs challenging whether Donald Trump can be on the ballot, that starts off as this incredibly damning question from Justice Elena Kagan today. But the lawyer for Colorado and then after him, the Colorado Solicitor General had an answer for that concern, saying basically, hey, States decide who gets on the ballot all the time. That's the system. It's not at all uncommon for different states to have different candidates listed for the same election. Some smaller party candidates get on the ballot in some states and not in others. Some candidates are kept off the ballot for eligibility concerns that some states take more seriously than others. It happens. The Supreme Court can give guidance to make it more uniform, but the states can handle this. The Colorado Solicitor General speaking on the same point just moments, moments later said there is a huge amount of disparity and candidates end up on the ballot on different states in every election. Just this election, she said, there's a candidate who Colorado excluded from the primary ballot who was on the ballot in other states, even though he's not a natural born citizen. That is just a feature of our process. It is not a bug. So there's an answer to this concern. And we just heard Jason Murray give us another live answer to it here moments ago in his interview with us. When the justices express the concern that individual states shouldn't be allowed to do something with such profound national consequences, it definitely resonates. Did the lawyers in the room rebut that concern, answer it in a way that's going to work on any or all of the justices? Does the fact that Justice Kagan asked about it at all mean that this ruling is foretold? Joining us now is someone who knows these things, Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor and legal correspondent for Slate. She's also the host of the Amicus podcast. Dahlia, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for being with us. It's good to see you. Is there anything that we've been talking about you tonight that has been like uh, petting a cat the wrong way for you, that you feel like we have screwed up, got the wrong way around or misunderstood?
13: Not at all. I might quibble with Ari's destination wedding metaphor only because (laughs) to me it it felt so acutely like that train and speed where it's just hurtling from one crisis to another. We have a court that's in the midst of a legitimacy crisis. We've got a Dobbs leak. We've got a bad investigation of the Dobbs leak. We've got ethics scandals left and right. We've got the first justice asking questions, had his wife texting Mark Meadows and trying to to get uh, state election officials to change votes. All of that is happening, and you sort of feel like the justices are like, hurtling their bodies against the sides of the train, just being like, get me off this train. I don't care what the rationale is. I'll go with the one state shouldn't decide rationale. I'll go with the officer office uh, rationale. I'll go with there was no due process uh, for the president rationale. I don't care, I need to be off. And that like anxiety (laughs) was palpable. Yeah. And Ari is saying that's exactly what I
9: mean. Right. So that means that that whatever way they weren't going to go to the wedding.
1: Yes, exactly. Not going to the wedding. The train isn't going to end well. Okay, so, Dalia, my question is a non-lawyer question for you, which is I think that we could all see the justices trying desperately to get away from having to do something substantive here that would address the crisis at hand. What's the Damage. What's the risk? What's the potential negative consequence of them finding a way to dodge it?
13: I mean, I think at the most sort of high-minded constitutional level, it's that this needed to be answered. And that Mm. is, I think, what Colorado was saying, is it is your job to resolve a constitutional question, largely of first impression. It is your job to decide for this entire country whether or not, uh, the 14th, uh, amendment, section three is self-executing, whether, uh, the office officer, Uh, dichotomy holds, whether we can allow insurrectionists to run for office or not hold office. There was a bucket of questions that are exigent questions, and the court I think made pretty plain that they'd rather or at least I counted, I think, five or six votes rather hang their hats on this kind of dopey, pragmatic argument that, you know, we don't want to decide because it will allow shenanigans in other states. So it just seems to me that the downside is and this was a you know, everybody knew this was a really. Huge vehicle. It was a big, big swing case, right? They have an opportunity to do the little swing when they get the immunity case. Uh, and maybe that's what that's the trade off here, right? But this was a huge swing case. But we have an unresolved constitutional question. And I'm not completely certain that writing, oh, we need enabling legislation gets them out from under that question.
1: On that point about the immunity case being right around the corner we expect that by monday these same justices will be asked to rule in uh, to to weigh in on whether or not that um dc circuit court ruling should stand the ruling that says unanimously by that panel of pellet dredges that that president trump doesn't have absolute immunity that he can be prosecuted in federal court for what he tried um after the election in discussing immunity today um I guess he wasn't trying to bring up immunity, but President Trump's lawyer awkwardly brought it up with with Brett Kavanaugh. while while Brett Kavanaugh was trying to focus on this question of why President Trump wasn't prosecuted for insurrection. And we've been talking about that a little bit tonight, this idea that because Trump hasn't been charged specifically with insurrection, that suddenly seemed to create this incredible clarity among all the justices that had that thing happened, then this would be something where there would be an easy answer and we'd know what to do. And this would be settled in some very definitive way. I just I wanted to ask your, your rea- reaction to that. It doesn't it doesn't seem clear to me why it's necessary for Trump to be charged with or convicted of insurrection uh, for the for the Constitution's ban on insur- insurrection serving in office uh, to be effectuated. But what, what did you think of how that part of it was handled today?
13: I, I was a little frustrated at how deeply disrespectful. I felt that the court was about the process that happened in the Colorado trial court. There was a a, a trial uh, on the merits. There were, um, as you just heard, uh, meaningful uh, 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 findings from that court. Uh, The notion that trial courts can't do this thing, uh, determine whether there was an insurrection, or even worse, Rachel, the notion, and we heard this from the Chief Justice, heaven for Fend, we would have to somehow determine whether there was an insurrection. Imagine us? if that us? fell on us. <laughs> yeah. And so it, there's a, a, such deep disrespect for what actually happened. And, and I think it dovetails with you know one of the things that you all said earlier in your roundup, which I think is so important. You know, we have a court that, for I guess, the first time in 20 years. Found humility today, like institutional humility. We can't do a thing. This is the court that like decides air pollution and water pollution and vaccine policies and is going to determine like what emergency room doctors can do when there is an abortion patient and what the FDA can do. They can do all that stuff and they can't either determine what an insurrection is or defer to a trial court's definition. It's very, very weird. In February of 2024, to discover humility.
1: Yeah, exactly. Resul- Results-oriented, um, as we have been describing. Dahlia Lithwick, senior editor, legal correspondent for Slate, host of the Amicus podcast, um, and my favorite person to talk with to, to talk with about the Supreme Court. Dahlia, thank you so much for being with us tonight. You guys, staff, I want to bring in, you, bring you in on this. Um, in discussing sort of what happened in the courtroom versus what's going to happen next. I feel like there's unlike the immunity case, like there isn't really a pace issue here. There isn't like a lot of scrambling as to what's going to happen next and what effect this will have on other cases. This is either going to end it all or it's not. And it feels like it's not. But does that mean that what happened in the courtroom today is essentially beside the point in terms of the impact of this case? In terms of beside the point, the concern I think tonight is. What do the
14: American people know? Yeah. You said it at the top of this broadcast. Most people were probably not listening today to the audio for two hours. And as sad as it makes us, not every American is watching us right now, though I totally think they should be. I think that's not I, they, they should be. <laughs> um, and just think about it. During those two hours, there was much debate over what exactly is in the amendment, what, what government job is considered an officer, previous cases. But there was no debate, there was no discussion, and there was no decision over whether Donald J. Trump incited an insurrection. And the risk now, if do- if, they- if the court rules in favor of Donald Trump, is a whole lot of Americans could say, look, he didn't do anything. Yeah. And that's not the case. So in terms of what happens next, like we say every night here, making sure the American people actually
1: know the truth. Yeah. And it's I mean, and it's a very good point, Steph, that if 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 we look at the details of this, it's important and understand the nuance and the difference between the different justices and whether it's going to be an eight to one decision or a six to three decision or how this is going to go. But if the takeaway from this is, oh, they tried to say that Trump did an insurrection. Right. And, they, if he and He didn't do it. And he yeah. won. He won that case. Yeah. Then if that's the takeaway, then people are a, missing the point, but the court's decision may do damage in terms of how we perceive whether or not the 14th Amendment exists, whether or not insurrection's OK and whether or not Trump did it. But what?
14: there's a whole lot of people that are going to take that takeaway, people in the media and say, see, That's he it. didn't do it. The high court said it. Yeah. Yeah. That's and a
11: risk. Point, I thought you made a really good point about this sort of sudden humility that they found. I wonder if they're going to find it on the Mifepristone case. Right. I mean, are they going to find it in cases where I mean, they they seem to believe that states have a lot of rights when it comes to women's physical body. But they are like the state. What's the state got to do with elections? Well, kind of everything. And as I was listening to Dahlia talk, I was thinking about another amendment that was a reconstruction amendment, the 15th amendment. Mm. The 15th amendment has what amounts to enabling legislation. It's called the Voting Rights Act. They have no problem Chipping and chipping and chipping away at the Voting Rights Act, which is the enabling legislation like a 100 years later for trying to enable the 15th Amendment, which is the one that says that no one shall be denied their right to vote based on race or previous condition of, of, of servitude. But on that amendment, they don't have any problem saying that some states can allow you to have voter ID, some states don't. Some states will let students vote, some states will only let you vote if you bring your gun license. States are making decisions that give you different outcomes for who is has access to the ballot every day. And only some justice departments, like Obama's, are really litigating on the question of that. And the reason I keep coming back to that is that what people are also forgetting is the insurrection was an attempt to deprive 80 million people of their right to vote. Yeah, that's right. It was an attempt to literally disenfranchise 80 million people, disproportionately black folks in Detroit, people in, in Georgia, people in Arizona, a lot of Latinos in, in, in Arizona. And you're talking about trying to disenfranchise people. Based on believing that they aren't true Americans and that they're the outcomes of their selection of a candidate shouldn't count.
12: I just I feel like these this week that we're in, it's Thursday, right? <laughs> um, between today, when it's so evident that the, the court is making political decisions, right, they're not just extreme textualists, they're not originalists, they're very much looking at the practical implication of the law. And then Monday, when they're going to get this appeal from Trump to hear the immunity case, and there's broad speculation that if they rule in Trump's favor on the 14th Amendment, they might not rule in his favor on immunity, making clear that this court takes into account politics when it makes its decisions. I mean, it is... The court's credibility is at a um, nadir and this th- both today and what happens or whatever transpires next week, the perception that it's, you know, you know, a slap on this wrist, a carrot on this hand in this hand and a stick in the other makes so evident to the American public this court is not what it proposes to be. Yeah. And the question, I think, is going to be somewhere along the line in some Congress yet to be elected. Accountability? I mean, how does it happen? And the prospect
1: of, you know, unanimous decisions from the court in either direction, which of course will be praised as this remarkable pseudo bipartisanship. (laughs) But it's just about, again, results driven um, negotiations. All right, much more to come in our recap of today's historic Supreme Court hearing. Stay with us.
2: We understand that what we are asking the court to recognize is something extraordinary, which is that for the first time in our nation's history, a major candidate for president of the United States is ineligible for that office under the Constitution. So we fully expected we were going to get difficult questions, but we're confident that when the court looks at the law and digs into the issues, it will realize that we're right and apply the law as it's written. Trump engaged in insurrection by inciting a violent mob to attack our capital and disenfranchise over 80 million people who voted against him. In doing so, President Trump disqualified himself from holding office. That's not something we are doing to him. That's not something any court is doing to him. That is something he did to himself under our Constitution
1: disenfranchising 80 million people who voted for his opponent, who was, in fact, the winner of that election. Tonight's special edition of The Last Word with Lawrence O'Donnell starts at 10.30 p.m. Eastern tonight. So you have that to look forward to. If you need a note for your boss in the morning as to why you're sleepier than usual, just let me know. I'll sign one for you. But welcome welcome back, meanwhile, to our, our primetime recap of the Supreme Court case today. This historic case about whether or not former President Donald Trump did himself out of a job did himself out of ever holding office again when he participated in an insurrection against the United States. Insurrection against the United States isn't just a mean thing to say about somebody, it's also a crime for which you can be charged in federal court. At today's arguments, Justice Brett Kavanaugh pointedly raised the issue of that possible federal prosecution. It made sense in context, but it was clearly a sensitive subject for President Trump's lawyer.
8: Just to be clear, under 2383, you agree that someone could be prosecuted for insurrection by federal prosecutors, and if convicted, could be or shall be disqualified then from office?
4: Yes, but the only caveat that I would add is that our client is arguing that he has presidential immunity, so we would not concede that he can be prosecuted for what he did on January 6th under
8: 2383. Understood. Asking a question about the theory of 2383. Thank you.
1: Understand One could be prosecuted for insurrection. One could be prosecuted, not him. Of course, he couldn't be prosecuted for anything. Not saying anything of one way or the other about whether Donald Trump might have committed the crime of insurrection, whether he might be immune from that prosecution for that crime, even if he did it. That, of course, is a sensitive issue for a sitting Supreme Court justice to discuss with anyone given that that is an issue that the Supreme Court will be taking up by Monday, as in several days from now. Um, Joining us once again is our friend Andrew Weissman, former general counsel of the FBI. He was one of the senior prosecutors on Robert Mueller's special counsel investigation. Andrew, thank you for sticking with us. Much appreciated. Um, What do you think about the fact that Donald Trump was never charged with insurrection or any insurrection-related crimes. That is something that the January 6th investigation in Congress suggested he should be charged with after their very detailed investigation.
15: Yeah, that had been one of the crimes that was referred by Congress to uh, the Department of Justice. That is the one crime that has as a penalty upon conviction that the person shall be Uh, not be able to to run for office. They're disqualified. So um, there was a lot of discussion today, as you've been noting, that that's essentially a form of the congressional, federally congressional um, sort of enabling statute for this constitutional provision. Um, I think there probably are two reasons that that, um, this Department of Justice did not charge it. Uh, remember, the special counsel is part of the Department of Justice, and I think one is that that crime had not been charged for, you know, many, 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 many years, and so the sort of idea that you're reaching back to that crime uh, to single out Donald Trump would certainly have been an attack. There's an answer to that, which is you know we've never been in this situation mm-hmm. before, um, but I think the other is if you think that there's a claim of politics now if you brought um, that charge um, with the, the idea is that that has that penalty, um, you're avoiding all that. And I think that's really worth taking a step back to note that if you think about what we're seeing, if you compare it, um, this Justice Department, both in the discussion we're having now about the fact that they did not charge insurrection, they did not seek to make it disqualifying for Donald Trump. And relate that also to what you saw in the Rob Hearst special counsel uh, report today. This is a Justice Department that appointed a special counsel for um, the sitting president, appointed a special counsel with respect to a sitting president's son. You did not have Merrick Garland, for instance, issue a Reported summary of the report <laughs> saying, uh, obviously, that's something on my mind today um, uh, from my work in the Mueller investigation. I mean, if you just compare um, the sort of propriety and sense of um, what the Department of Justice should be doing or not, and even if you disagree with it, it's clear they're trying to um, adhere to the rule of law and appropriate Uh, functions of the Department of Justice. Um, And it just is in striking contrast to the Trump administration, where they appointed, uh, the Department of Justice appointed a special counsel, and basically every single day (laughs) that that special counsel existed, there was the constant threat um, that Donald Trump would get rid of the special counsel. So it's just remarkable how different um, the two justice departments are behaving. Uh, that was sort of my, my take home when I was thinking about the, the insurrection charge that was raised in the oral argument today.
1: Let, let me also ask you about the other thing that came up, I think, a little bit awkwardly um, in that exchange between the justice and the lawyer, which was this question of immunity. Obviously, the Supreme Court, within just the next few days, is going to consider whether or not um, to leave standing that circuit court ruling that said that Donald Trump doesn't have immunity from prosecution. Um, I think I, I mean, I don't know. I think the common wisdom is probably that they will take it up, but also that um, the, the the circuit court's ruling against Trump is is not in much danger. I mean, again, it's the peanut gallery. Who knows? We'll see how it right. goes uh, once the court makes its own decision. But do you think there is any interplay um, for the justices between what they handled today, this issue of Trump's qualification to be on the ballot, and this next thing that is coming down the pike to them, this issue of immunity. Do you think that one of them um, being so soon, so, so near on the horizon has an effect at all in terms of how they handle these issues. Separately.
15: Yeah. Th- yeah. These are people. I mean, you know, they are humans. And yes, there is the, you know, people are saying, well, maybe they'll take it because they want to show that they're even handed. You know, they'll give with one hand and, and take with another. Um, cause they clearly wouldn't take that case, uh, just to, um, reverse the the D.C. Circuit. That's just, that's just not going to happen. Um, they would be taken to put their imprimatur on that issue. But the, on the other hand, I think having lived through today, they may be saying, you know what, we do not need <laughs> any more Trump cases. And my own view is that that's probably the way to go, because it'd be odd to take a case where you might be vindicating the idea that uh, no president is above the law, that the, you know, the, the unremarkable proposition that a president cannot kill people um, with impunity. I mean, it's just almost incredible that we're having that discussion. But if they were to take the case to vindicate that, in many ways, de facto, they would be undermining it because it would right. delay the case that is actually trying to hold them accountable for crimes. Um, so it in some ways is the the worst possible vehicle to um, for them to be putting their imprimatur on um, that principle. Of yeah.
1: And again, just as humans, like even if you only think about the three justices who were appointed by Donald Trump, knowing that they would be sitting there for like a couple of hours like they were today and it would have to happen again really soon. And they'd have to spend the whole time talk about talking about Donald Trump murdering people murdering individuals. There'd be like named people who'd be murdered in the hypotheticals and they'd have to sit there and like engage with it in order to come to, even if it was a predetermined conclusion. I can't imagine if you're Amy Coney Barrett, that that sounds like a fun way to spend a Tuesday after today.
15: Yeah, absolutely. If you th- just look at today, we're basically, you know, just almost almost it was a bloodless um sort of discussion today where there was just limited discussion about the actual insurrection. It was so interesting hearing from counsel um, for Colorado with us um, tonight, where he actually gave so much more color to and discussion about what actually happened on January 6th. That didn't happen in the Supreme yep. Court. And I can see them very much not wanting it to happen in those hallowed um, halls.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. Andrew Reisman, former general counsel uh, to the FBI and our, our stalwart friend uh, on nights like this. Andrew, thank you very much. You're welcome. I do think that there's, I think, and this is to your point, Alex, that It's impossible to think that these justices are gonna handle these issues in isolation, yeah. that this has to affect their willingness to take on the immunity case, when I don't think anybody expects that they're going to overturn that appeals court ruling, if they're going to say that Donald Trump really is immune from prosecution, even if he murders his political opponents. So why put themselves through this again? Well,
12: and, and the and the reality that just sort of taking it up to put their stamp on it is going to hand Trump a win by further delaying the case. That's yeah. another political consideration. Yeah. I do think it's important for people who feel dejected by the likelihood that the Supreme Court isn't going to rule in the prosecution's favor on the 14th Amendment case. If you're looking for political accountability for Donald Trump, right, the 14th Amendment situation, if you will, was always going to be problematic and complicated and maybe result in a situation that would have created even more civil strife in this country. The immunity thing, the, the federal case that Jack Smith has built against Trump is very narrow. It's built for speed, we don't know when it's gonna to go to trial, but it very well could go to trial in this summer. He could get convicted. That could be real accountability in, in a fine, in a sort of final way that I think a lot of people are looking for in this moment when it comes to Donald Trump and the absolutely absurd defenses he's mounted vis-a-vis his behavior in and around January 6th in the 2020 election. Can I can I just for one minute
11: I'd be the you know, and I never like to disagree with Andrew Weissman because I think he is brilliant, but I mean I am not uh, I don't think the Justice Department has covered itself in glory in any of this, to be honest, because, you know, I think it was totally appropriate to appoint a special counsel in the case of the current sitting president's handling of documents, because that is the Justice Department. It's the guy he appointed mm-hmm. that's running DOJ in the case of the former president. it's not clear why you needed a special counsel and three years and to avoid the most obvious charge, which was 2383 insurrection. And I think the the outcome of the Colorado case proves that it was a winnable case. Mm -hmm. In five days, they proved that Donald Trump did violate the law when it comes to insurrection, that he was an insurrectionist. And by not just being direct, and not doing the job that he's getting the big bucks for, Merrick Garland, he has caused us to have to wait three years to have the Supreme Court avoid doing the obvious Mm, as well. Definitely. And the truth is he could have just been charged with insurrection, by the current Justice Department and it would have been adjudicated and over by now. And this would not be a question. And you can only blame one man, Merrick Garland. Yes.
12: And I'm by no I didn't mention the name Merrick Garland. I think Jack Smith took this up as quickly as he could. Yes, he did. Yes. Yes. Yes, so two, yes, two and a half years. Yes. I mean, that's going to be the true question, depending on the timing of this trial. All right. Our recap
1: of today's arguments at the Supreme Court continues in just a moment. Stay with us.
2: If President Trump were appointed to an office today, if he were appointed as a state judge, he could not hold that office, which shows that the disability exists now. And the fact that Congress has a power to remove the disability doesn't negate the present qualification, nor does it implicitly bestow on President Trump a constitutional right to run for offices that he cannot hold.
0: We've been told that if what Colorado did here is sustained, other states are going to retaliate and they're going to potentially uh, exclude uh, another candidate from the ballot. What about that situation?
7: Your Honor, I I think we have to have faith in our system that people will... um Follow their election processes appropriately, um, that they will um, take realistic views of what insurrection is under the 14th Amendment. Um, courts will review those decisions. This court may review some of them, um, but I don't think that this court should should take those threats um, too seriously in its resolution of this case. You don't think that's a serious threat? Um, I, I think we have We processes. should proceed on the assumption that it's not a serious threat. I think we have institutions in place to handle um, those types of allegations.
1: One of several moments of today's landmark Supreme Court arguments in which the justices raised the prospect that if one state pulls a candidate's name off the ballot, then other states will retaliate and pull other candidates' names off the ballot for no good reason. And wouldn't that be terrible? This is a case that former President Trump makes in public all the time. The rejoinder to it is an obvious one. We heard it there from Colorado Solicitor General. The rejoinder to it is, well, no, we're still operating within the rule of law here. And if there's no good reason for throwing someone off the ballot, the courts won't allow it, just like we won't allow retaliatory, malicious prosecutions for no reason or any of the other things that Trump is threatening. Joining us now is NBC News presidential historian Michael Beschloss. Michael, it's lovely to see you. Thanks for being with us tonight.
16: Same here. Thank you, Rachel.
1: I wanted to ask you both about the substance of today's hearing. I think most observers believe that President Trump will not be struck off the ballot based on today's oral arguments, although who knows? But also this larger point that I think was illustrated by by that, that exchange we just played, which is... So much of what's happening in terms of the country reckoning with Donald Trump right now is the country reckoning with his bluster, his threats and the fear of what he might do if he is held to account. And that's right up on the Supreme Court's doorstep now.
16: That's for sure. And we just heard those words in that clip. We've got to have faith in our institutions. Well, you know, that's true in general. But I I keep on remembering both when I was listening today and also listening to all of you talk tonight watching what Justice Robert Jackson said in 1949, he said, the Constitution is not a suicide pact. Mm. And what he meant by that is, you know, the Constitution deals with all sorts of issues, but if you can't protect your country against threats like rebellion and insurrection, such as we saw in the Civil War, and we saw on the 6th of January, then none of the rest of this matters. So looking at it historically, you know, the Civil War, it's a matter of grim record that the Confederacy tried to take down our republic, tried to take down our democracy, break it up into two or more countries, one of which would be a big slaveholding republic. The Union Army was able to prevent that narrowly. But what happened, as you know from your reading of history, is that after Appomattox, after the Civil War ended, uh, Jefferson Davis was actually saying, and this is a direct quote, the leader of the Confederacy supposedly defeated. What he said was, the Confederacy was not defeated in this war. We won a victory, and we were cheated of it. So he tried to deal with that by getting ex-Confederates elected to federal office, elected to state office. And so that's one of the reasons that we've got this 14th Amendment, which was Congress and the states putting themselves on the line in a constitutional amendment saying, you know, we've got to protect our country and make sure that an insurrection like the 1860s never happens again. All I'm saying is here we are in 2024. Donald Trump has committed an effort at insurrection, it almost succeeded in 2021, he's now saying, you know, I uh, will do it again if you elect me president. I may have a dictatorship. I may suspend the Constitution. How much more of a warning do we need?
1: In terms of the Supreme Court taking what appears to be its approach to this today, again, we're reading the tea leaves in terms of the way the justices behaved and the questions that they asked. But if they choose to absent themselves from this process and say, hey, we hope the 14th Amendment takes care of itself. Hey, we hope that insurrectionism right. is Lots something no. yeah, that has self-defense. I mean, in history, are there parallels? Are there things that we should be looking to in terms of the Supreme Court walking away from confrontations with real and present dangers like this?
16: absolutely you know the the supreme court knew with the dred scott decision in 1857 what they were unleashing by saying that slavery would go on forever and it would spread this this court is beginning to remind me a little bit about the court that of the court that brought us the dred scott decision and all i'm saying is that for someone to say well let's just have faith in our institutions our institutions did not work in the 1860s they almost didn't work in 2021. Mm. If the Supreme Court does not act, uh, if Colorado does not prevail, then we're basically saying, leave it to the voters. And all I can say is to people watching us tonight, voters, you know, Donald Trump has said he wants to take down this republic. Is that okay with you? It almost happened before, twice. Are we going to let it happen a third time this
1: November? NBC News presidential historian Michael Beschloss. Michael, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate
16: thank you, it. Rachel. You're welcome.
1: Yes. Kristen. I just I want to just add
10: to what Michael said, because one of the strange things today was that um, arguments sort of for affirming Colorado tended to be very historical and textual. And the arguments back were these very practical. Like, well, if we do this, if we pull on this thread, this thing will happen. and. What was totally missing were practical and prudential considerations on the other side. Yes. Let's forget about the text of the 14th Amendment. Let's just think about if you let this guy on the ballot. Let's say that we have an election in which Donald Trump is polling ahead going into election day, but the polls were wrong and he loses. Let's say that we have an election in which Joe Biden wins 270 electoral votes to Donald Trump's 268. Totally possible. That means every state is a deciding state. Let's say one of those states was decided by 5,000 votes, or as in the case of Florida in 2000, by 600 votes. What do you think is going to happen under those conditions? What do you think will happen to the country if this man is
1: in that position
10: under those conditions?
1: Yeah, a bigger mob with... Better weapons. Yep. That's Mm. the plan, right? Amen. In just a few moments, my colleague Lawrence O'Donnell will take the reins with a special edition of The Last Word. Don't go anywhere.